I want to give a couple book blurbs for the class. So a couple books. First one is The Story of God's Love for You by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you've heard of the Jesus Storybook Bible, that's what this book is, but without the pictures. So it's the same text. This book is incredible because it just walks through the story of Scripture in, in the form of a children's story, which I think is beautiful. But what it does is it really centers on the main theme of the Bible, which is Jesus. And so you will find like the remnants of Jesus in every single story leading up to him. And I think this is just an incredible book and would highly recommend it. The next book also has to do with this class. On Monday, we talked about reading our Bibles and how important that is and being in God's Word. This is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book by Gordon D. Fee and Douglas Stewart. All right, this is more of a textbook. This is not something you're just going to like, you know, fly through the pages from beginning to end. This is more of a reference book. So if you're maybe reading through the book of Exodus and you're just thinking like, man, I, I know about Moses, but there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't know about. What's this really, what's going on here? Look to the book, to the chapter on Exodus, and it's maybe like seven or eight pages, and it's going to give you uh, data for Exodus, an overview. It's going to give you advice for reading Exodus, things to keep in mind. It's going to give you a basic walkthrough of the outline and what's happening and the major themes. It's a really good companion piece to have alongside of you if you're reading through the Bible. So I highly recommend this. It's a really good, uh, just a really good study element to go along with scripture. How to read the Bible book by book. Okay. For those of you who have not been in this class before, thank you for coming. Welcome. And um, I'll give you kind of a brief summary of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about stories. There you go. Um, specifically, that we are shaped and molded by stories more than anything else. Not by rules, not by laws. We are shaped by stories. Your life is a story. Your story should be shared with others, and your story needs to be shaped by God's story. That was what we talked about on day one. On day two, we talked about the bad stories, the false stories that the devil and the world is trying to tell to us, and how to distinguish between the false narratives and the true narratives. Yesterday, we talked about what a good story is. A good story is a redemptive story. A story that actually uh, brings redemption so that the light conquers the darkness. That's what a redemptive story is. So we talked about those different elements. Today we're going to talk about the author's story. And more specifically, our story from the author's point of view. That's what today's lesson is going to be about. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I will tell you a story. This is a true story, by the way. Around the early 1900s, turn of the century in London, there was an author named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had dreams and aspirations of becoming a famous writer. And he loved historical fiction. That was the genre he cared about the most. And he was aspired to be like a Charles Dickens or some of these great authors of old. And that's what he wanted to do. But he couldn't find anybody to publish his works, and he was broke, and he could barely pay the bills. And one day, this magazine in London called Strand Magazine approached him 
about writing a series of short stories in the detective genre. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle despised the detective genre. He didn't enjoy writing that, but he needed to make some money. So he said, sure, I'll do it. And he invented a character by the name of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is perhaps the most famous character in the entire Western canon. Everybody knows who Sherlock Holmes is. And everyone in London was freaking out about Sherlock Holmes. When these stories came out, they could not get enough of it. It was a cultural phenomenon. People were just going crazy, subscribing to Strand Magazine left and right. They could not get enough of Sherlock Holmes. And Arthur Conan Doyle was becoming famous and rich. His name was getting out there, which is exactly what he wanted. However, he was having a hard time writing the stories. It took him forever. One, because anytime you write a story in the detective genre, you have to work really hard to plot everything out and leave these little clues without giving away the ending. It was just a lot of tedious work writing these short stories. And B, if you're going to write about Sherlock Holmes, you kind of have to be smarter than Sherlock Holmes. So he had to work so hard to make Sherlock Holmes clever. And it was exhausting. At the end of every day, he had drained himself creatively. He had drained everything he had in him. And he couldn't give any more to writing about the things he was passionate about. And so finally, after several short stories, he said, you know what? I got all the money I need. I got the fame and the platform. It's time for me to move on. So in one of his stories, he killed Sherlock Holmes with Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis Moriarty. And all of London went into an uproar. They could not handle it. They said, no, you can't kill Sherlock Holmes. He is our beloved Sherlock Holmes, the beloved investigator. You have to bring him back to life. And Strand Magazine was losing subscribers left and right. So they came to Arthur Conan Doyle and said, look, you signed a contract. You have to keep writing about Sherlock Holmes. You have to resurrect this character. So against his better wishes, Arthur Conan Doyle resurrected Sherlock Holmes and continued writing about him. And towards the end of his life, Arthur Conan Doyle actually said that one of his biggest regrets was that he ever invented Sherlock Holmes. He said this, I believe that if I had never touched Holmes, my position in literature would have been a much more commanding one. He regretted one of the greatest characters that was ever invented. I find that sad, not so much because I care that much about Sherlock Holmes. I find it sad because, and maybe you feel the same way, deep down inside there's a part of me that wonders if my author feels the same way about me. And deep down inside I wonder if there's a part of you that is thinking, does my creator wish that he had never invented me? Does he look at me and say, this person's a waste of space. Why did I ever make what I want you to see this morning is that your story is just dripping with the love of God in every corner. And you are here for a reason. And that's what we're getting into. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading this from the New American Standard, by the way, because I love the way they phrase this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we need you this morning. I need you to go before me to deliver these words into the hearts of everyone here. God, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive it? Would you bless me now as I speak, give me clarity? And God, would you give us imagination? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and give us that imagination to see this incredible story that you are telling and to see the beauty and the grace and the love that is poured out of it and the awesome privilege that we have to be a part of that story. God, would you be with us and be with us right now? Christ's name. I want to talk about three things this morning. Number one, your story is not an accident. Number two, your story was written in love. And number three, your story already has an ending. Number one, your story is not an accident. I'm a huge fan of Pixar. I think Pixar does as good a job at telling stories as anyone in pop culture today. And a few years ago, I read an article that was written by the creators of Pixar that was written for authors and writers and aspiring storytellers. And it was called 21 Tips for Storytelling. And it was just like small little tidbits, like meant for an author to read and get good ideas from. Like one of them said, uh, a coincidence that gets your character into trouble is fun. A coincidence that gets them out of trouble is cheating. That's great advice. That's, that's something every writer needs to hear. One of the pieces of advice they gave was this. When you finished your first draft, combine characters and clean up the plot so that every character in your story matters. Now, if the creators of Pixar know this about the stories that they tell. Because if you watch a Pixar movie, you'll notice that every character serves a purpose to the plot. Every character matters. If the creators of Pixar know this about the stories that they are telling, how much more does the creator of all the universe know this about the stories that he is telling? In other words, what I'm saying is this. You are not a wasted character. You are not an accident. You are here for a reason. You are here because God wants you to be part of his story. You want proof? Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You know what he's saying? This is what the psalmist is saying. Before I was even born, when I was in my mother's womb, God, you wrote down in your book. Like He actually says that. You wrote down in your book all of my days. He's showing us that God is the author who is writing our story down in a book before we were even born. Your story is not an accident. And I'm not saying this so that you can walk away from this feeling better about yourself or having like boosted self-esteem. I'm actually saying this to humble you. I'm saying this to humble you. Because I want you to see that life is about more than just how you feel in the moment. 
Because if I, if I were to ask you, and, and I, I know this because I was a teenager and because I, I worked with teenagers for a long time, and, and, and this is true of adults as well, but if I was to ask you how your day went, a lot of your responses would revolve around how you felt in certain moments during the day. And what I want you to see is that that's not, it's not that that's not important. Your feelings, your emotions are 100% valid and real and need to be addressed and dealt with and worked through. But I want you to see that your life is about more than just how you feel. Because it's about more than just you. Your life is part of a grand story, a grand narrative that is being told. And your story is not an accident. It is a part of that narrative. Number two, your story was written in love. When I was a little kid, I used to ask this question all the time. How does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? I was baffled by that. I would ask Sunday school teachers and preachers and all these adults, how does God hear our prayers at the same time? I don't understand it. And the answer I would inevitably get from everyone would be something along the lines of, well, it's just, you know, like, it's kind of like, imagine it's what well, he's, he's God. Okay. He's God. And I would just have to live with that answer. It's not a bad answer. But when I was in college, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis that answered that question better than anybody I've ever heard. He basically says this. How does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? If God is our author, then he exists outside of our time, and he is not bound by time in the same ways that we are. Let me give you an example to illustrate what that means. Uh, how many of y'all have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, that's maybe C.S. Lewis's most famous work, or one of them. And uh, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I, I know that like the magician's nephew is like supposed to be the first one, but I kind of like to read them in the order that he wrote them. Uh, so that would be The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe coming first. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is for this moment that I'm about to discuss. So there's this moment in the story where these four kids are in the beaver's hut, and the beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And C.S. Lewis said, now none of the kids have heard the name Aslan yet, nor have you. But if you've already read The Magician's Nephew, you've already heard the name Aslan, and it ruins that moment. Okay, back to the beaver's hut. They're in the beaver's hut, and they hear the name Aslan, and all four of the kids have a different response to that name at the same time, simultaneously. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if a delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. They had those feelings all at the same time. Now, I want you to step out of Narnia for a second. Use your imaginations here. I want you to imagine a dusty old office somewhere in Oxford, England. I don't know if that's where C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Let's just pretend like it is. And there's a desk in there and bookshelves and a lamp and pen and parchment. Maybe he had a typewriter. I don't know. It's an old book, okay? And he's sitting there writing the story, and he gets to the part where all four of these kids are having a response at the same time. And C.S. Lewis gets up and thinks to himself, how is Edmund going to respond? Let's deal with Edmund first. And he puts every other kid on hold. Even though in Narnia time, it's all happening in a split second, C.S. Lewis steps aside from that, and he walks around his office. He 
thinks, maybe he grabs a cup of coffee, maybe he grabs another book just to get some ideas, some language to use. And then he says, Edmund is going to feel a sensation of mysterious horror. And he writes it down. And then he moves on to Peter. And then Susan. And then Lucy, one at a time. Because he is the author of Narnia, and he exists outside of Narnian time. Here's what I'm saying. Guys, this is so important. You know, I know you have to put your thinking caps on. You've got to go a little bit deeper with me. When you pray to God, I know that sometimes you think that nobody's listening to you. Because God's up in his throne room, and there are a million phones ringing at the same time, and he's just frantically running around trying to decide which one's most important, which call am I, I'm going to put them on hold, I'm going to take this one right now, this is an emergency, somebody's bleeding out, okay? God is not frantic in his throne room. God, our author, exists outside of our time. So this is what happens when you pray. Guys, this is amazing. This should change the way that you pray. Every time you pray to God, it is as if... Every other call gets put on hold. And your author, your creator, gives you his infinite, undivided attention when you pray. That's how much he loves you. That's how much your story is written in love. But it goes beyond that. All right, we've been geeking out this morning. I talked about Sherlock Holmes, talked about Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to talk about Harry Potter in a little bit. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings right now. Okay. I love Lord of the Rings. I love the movies. I love the books. I read the books when I was in high school. I started rereading The Fellowship of the Ring um, this spring. And I remembered this character that I stumbled across that was not in the movies. And for those of you who maybe haven't seen Lord of the Rings, let me, let me sum it up briefly. <laughs> there's this hobbit named Frodo who has this ring that is the most powerful weapon in all of Middle Earth. And when he puts it on, what happens to him? He, he becomes invisible. And all of the other heroes in Middle Earth are scared of this ring, like Gandalf, Aragorn, Galadriel. They can't touch it. They can't look at it. They're like, get that away from me. It's too tempting. So Frodo is the one who has to destroy it before the big bad guy can get his hands on it. Okay, that's the story. Well, at the beginning of his quest, Frodo and his three friends, Sam, Mary, and Pippin, they're all wandering out of the Shire, and they wander into this forest, and they're getting attacked by these like ghosts and trees and magical things. And they think they're about to die. And all of a sudden, they are rescued by this strange character named Tom Bombadil. Yes. Tom Bombadil <laughs> is not in the movies. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, I'm glad someone knows who he is. Tom Bombadil is just, I, I, he's just weird, okay? I can't really describe him any other way. He's basically kind of a jolly old elf. He's a hermit who lives in a log cabin in the woods. He's married to a river goddess. He claims that he's older than the tree, so he's like thousands of years old. He just walks around singing nonsense songs all day. I just kind of imagine him bouncing with like suspenders and stuff. He's just, he's just kind of weird. And he walks up and he rescues Frodo and the hobbits, brings him back to his cabin and starts cooking for them. Well, Frodo is telling Tom about his journey. And Tom says, Frodo, let me see that ring you got. So Frodo hands him the ring, and Tom holds it. And already Frodo's going, whoa, even Gandalf couldn't hold this ring. Like, what's happening? And Tom holds the ring, flicks it up in the air, and in midair, it vanishes. 
Frodo goes, whoa. And then Tom reaches behind him and pulls the ring out. He's doing magic tricks with the ring of power like it's no big deal. And the hobbits are just like, well, what is going on? And then Tom takes the ring, puts it on his own finger, and he doesn't disappear. Well, Frodo and the hobbits are sufficiently freaked out right now. They don't know what's happening. And Tom, like it's no big deal, just takes it off, flicks it back to Frodo and goes, I'm hungry. Let's eat. So they go over this start to supper. Well, Frodo thinks that Tom has pulled a fast one on him. Frodo thinks that when it disappeared, that he switched it out with a different ring, and that's why he didn't vanish when he put it on. So Frodo sneaks over into the corner when nobody's watching, and he's testing out the ring, and he puts it on his own finger, and sure enough, he disappears, and he realizes, oh my goodness, it's the actual ring of power. Why did it not affect Tom the way that it affects me? And as he's standing there in the corner, invisible, Tom does this. He looks over at Frodo and says, Frodo, I see you over there wearing that ring. Why don't you take it off and come join us for supper? Let's not mess with that anymore. He sees him while he's invisible. Okay, and Tom Bombadil is in this book for like two chapters, and he's barely mentioned again in the rest of the story, and that's it. Like, he, can't, he really serves no purpose to the overall plot of the story. I think that's why Peter Jackson left him out, because he's just an easy character to leave out. Now, when the books came out, scholars and critics were coming to Tolkien and saying, look, you got to tell us about this Tom Bombadil guy. Who is he? Like, wh what the heck is his part of the story all about? And Tolkien would always say, there are some things that are better left a mystery. And he'd never answer it. And, and scholars would then say, okay, like, is, he, is Tom like the most powerful character in Middle Earth? Like, is he more powerful than everybody else? And Tolkien would say this. He would say, it's not that he's the most powerful, it's that Tom Bombadil exists outside of the powers of Middle-earth. They don't affect him the way they affect everyone else. Now, scholars have theorized, and although Tolkien never confirmed this, he also never denied it, and scholars have theorized that Tom Bombadil is J.R.R. Tolkien himself. That Tolkien loved Middle-earth, he loved his creation so much that he wrote himself into the story at the most pivotal part of the story for Frodo. And then he, he's gone. Now, I don't know if that's true. But if it is true, I think I know where Tolkien got the idea. Because Tolkien was a Christian. And guess what? There's another story that does that. Your author, the author of all creation, Loved his creation so much that he wrote himself into the story. And on a cold, dark night in Bethlehem, a baby cried, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The author himself came into the story. That's how much he loves his creation. That's how much he loves you. He wrote himself into the story. But it goes beyond that, guys. We read from Hebrews chapter 12 earlier. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross is the least joyful event in the history of the world. Many historians say that it was the most painful form of death ever invented. But it's not just the physical pain. It's the spiritual pain. Jesus had our sin put on his shoulders he had the punishment for that sin put on his shoulders. The wrath of God 
put on his shoulders and he bore it all. And Hebrews says he did it for the joy that was set before him. Why would that be a joyful thing for him? In order to know what Hebrews is talking about, we have to do a little detective work. We have to be Sherlock Holmes. We have to go back to Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied several times about Jesus coming. And Isaiah 53 is the prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross. And in verses 10 and 11, this is what Isaiah says. And guys, I know we're like, we're diving deep into like prophecies and Old Testament stuff. Hang in there with me because this is awesome. Isaiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, Jesus, shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he, Jesus, shall see and be satisfied. What is Isaiah saying? First off, who are the offspring of Jesus? Jesus was not married. He didn't have kids. Who were his offspring? Us. The children of God. Do you know what Isaiah is saying? Guys, this is so awesome. This is so awesome. Isaiah is saying... That when the author himself is hanging on the cross, he looks forward in that moment. He looks forward through the annals of time and he sees his children. He sees his offspring. He sees you and he sees me. And it says his soul will see and be satisfied. What was the joy that was set before him? We were. Literally. In that moment, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees your face and he says, that's it. That's why I'm doing this. Because I want to be with my bride. I want to be with my beloved. I want to gather my children. I want to live with them for all eternity. And this is the only way it can happen. That is the joy that is set before you. Your story was written in love and it was written in blood. No one can take that away. This brings us to our last point. Your story already has an ending. In 2007, I attended my first ever RYM camp at this retreat center. I was a chaperone. I was in college, and I was chaperoning First Press, Tuscumbia. And I came here and just fell in love with this camp, thought it was awesome. And here I am 12 years later, and I'm working for it. It's just so cool. But that summer, something else was going on in my life. I was attending the school of Hogwarts. <laughs> uh, I was reading Harry Potter for the first time. And one of my friends, Kurt, had introduced me to these books. And I'd never read them when I was a kid. And he was like, man, they're so good. you got to read them. Because this was the summer that the seventh book was coming out, The Deathly Hallows. And I started reading them. And I'm, I'm not a, a fast reader. And I was like, these are big books. It's going to take me a while. Maybe by next summer, I will have gotten to the seventh book. Okay, I read the first six books in six weeks. I plowed through them. I could not put them down. And then I had to come here, and it was like the longest week of my life because I had to wait for the seventh book to come out. The seventh book came out like on a Thursday night, like last night on the night out, okay? And it was a cultural phenomenon. People like all over the world were lining up at bookstores with lines wrapped around the buildings and stuff. People here at this camp were leaving to go buy the books. Friday, the beaches were like empty because everyone was inside reading Harry Potter. Like people were obsessed with it. Well, I couldn't get my copy. And so when I went back home, uh, 
Kurt, my friend who had introduced them to me, he also couldn't get his copy on opening night. And so we went back together and got our copy. And this is what Kurt did. When he got his book, the first thing he did was flip to the last page. And he goes, reads it, closes the book, goes, okay. And then he opens back up to page one. And I said, Kurt, what are you doing? You just ruined the end of the story. You've been waiting your entire life for this part of the story, and you just ruined it. Why would you do that? And he looked at me and said, I know. I just had to know that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> as much as I would not advise ever ruining the end of the story, I look at that and I sympathize with Kurt because it's very human of us. We want to know the end of the story so badly. And there's actually something inside of us that wants to know the end of our own stories. And Jesus knows that about us. And guess what? Jesus ruined the end of the story. He gave us the book of Revelation, and he tells us how our stories end. And let me give a quick disclaimer here. It will not end the same for everyone. For those of us who have put our hope in Christ, the end of the story is beautiful, and I'm about to describe a little bit of it. But for those of us who have not, the end of the story is darkness. It is brokenness. And it is more pain and suffering than we've ever experienced here on this earth. And I urge you to come to Jesus because he is your only hope. And if you do come to Jesus, this is what the end of the story will look like. I've been picking on Disney this week, so I'm going to tell you a Disney movie that I think gets it right. Beauty and the Beast. There are two versions of this movie. There's the animated version from the early 90s and the live-action version from like a couple years ago. Both are good. The animated version is better. But there is a scene in the new movie that I actually like better. Uh, so quick synopsis of what's going on if you've forgotten. Uh, there's this prince who lives in a castle who's really mean. And this witch curses him and turns him into a beast. But the curse falls over the whole castle. And every servant and person who lives in the castle also falls under the curse, and they become talking pieces of furniture, basically. And you see the biblical imagery here, okay? This curse has fallen over this castle. And if the beast doesn't find love before the last petal of the flower falls, in the animated version, they all stay that way forever. But in the live-action version, the stakes are a little higher. If the beast doesn't find love before the last petal falls... It's not that they just stay as talking pieces of furniture. It's that they actually lose their humanity, and they actually die. And they just become cold, lifeless, regular pieces of furniture. And there is this gut-wrenching scene at the end of the live action where the beast falls, you think he's dead, and the last petal falls, and it goes to the servants and the characters in the castle, and they can feel death creeping up inside of them. And it's heartbreaking. Lumiere and Cogsworth are looking at each other and they can feel it. And they're going, goodbye, old friend. It was an honor serving with you all these years. And they're frozen and gone. And Mrs. Potts desperately looking for her son. Chip, where's my boy? Where's my son? And she's gone. Cold, lifeless face. And everyone just dies. And it's done and it's over. But you know the end of the story? Bell comes along, and 
through this incredible act of love, the curse is lifted and all is made right. And everyone is brought back to life. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. It's not just that they brought these talking pieces of furniture back to life as talking pieces of furniture. They brought them back to life as the fullest version of themselves, the people they were meant to be all along. That's our story. That's new heavens and new earth. Because right now, we might as, these bodies that we live in under this curse, we might as well be talking pieces of furniture compared to what we were meant to be, compared to the way God created us. That's how bad the curse is. It has ruined us. We cannot imagine the glory that is to come. But one day, one day, Jesus himself will come back and he will bring heaven down to earth and we will live here on this earth, on this soil, in this grass, on this sand, on this rock for all eternity. And it will be made new and it will be restored to the glory it was meant to have. And you and I will be restored to our resurrected bodies. We will actually live in bodies with flesh and blood and bone. And we will walk and play. And we can play on the sand without fear of hurricanes or storm surges, without fear of the sun burning us. Like We will have glorified bodies and a glorified existence with resurrected friendships and resurrected relationships on a resurrected planet in a resurrected universe with a resurrected Jesus. It is all made new. That's the end of the story that we have to look forward to. Rather, I should probably say that is the beginning of our story. Because this life here, the life we live under the curse, the Bible says that that is a vapor in the wind. It is a fleeting breath. It comes and goes like that. But one day, all the pain will be taken away. And all the sad things will come untrue. And all the darkness will be lifted all will be made right. That is the bulk of our story. That's what our story is lifting to. And you know what that means? It means this. <clears throat> we all live with shame and brokenness and insecurity, every one of us. And we look around us and we think that we're the only ones. And, and, and if we could just dive into each other's stories, we would realize that every one of us are living with the same brokenness and shame. But when you are in the depths of that shame, when you are in the depths of that darkness and suffering, when like the worst thing you could ever imagine actually happens to you, when you are at death's doorstep, your story's not over. Your story's not over. It's only just beginning. C.S. Lewis says this, and this, this is a bold statement, but... These might be my favorite words that were ever written outside of the Bible. The last paragraph of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before our story. Every chapter will be better than the one before. We get to look forward to that.
I want to close by doing something unique. I, and I don't want this to come across as self-promotional at all. I want to play a song that I wrote for you based on that passage. I didn't write it for you. Sorry. A song that I wrote, I want to play it for you. It's based on that passage in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I hope that this will be an encouragement to you because I said earlier, stories move us and shape us in ways that we can't even explain. Music does the same thing. And so I would hope that this song would be an encouragement for you to remember that even in your darkest moments, in your most painful moments, the story's not over. So this song is called Further Up and Further In. When we're buried beneath the weight of this grief and the burden that we cannot bear, this story ain't over. This story ain't over. When the dusk eats away at the light of the day and our time has set with the sun when the shadows descend and our days come to an end and the last breath escapes from our lungs this story ain't over this story ain't over. An innocent man takes a murderer's hand and swaps places with him on death row. And when he lays down his life and the crowd sees him die and they bury him Six feet below This story ain't over This story ain't over When he wipes away our tears We've been there ten thousand years and our pain is just part of the past When we've gone further up We've gone further in And every chapter is better than the last This story ain't over This story
hope that that is a blessing to you, and I hope that it is a reminder to you and to myself to remember that even in our darkest moments, even in our moments of deepest pain and suffering, our story is not over. And our author has written our story in love, and that love will be poured out on us one day in the fullest sense, in ways we can't imagine. I hope you take solace and comfort in that. Let's pray. God, you have been good to us. More good than we could believe or imagine. And sometimes it's, it's tempting for us to say that it's, it, all this stuff is too good to be true. It's just, it almost doesn't make sense that anyone would be that good to us after who we are and what we've done. Would you help us to see how much we are loved? How you have written our stories in love. You created us for a reason and you put us here to be with each other, to encourage one another, to help each other remember the story of Scripture. That one day all the sad things will come untrue and that we will be made new Everything will be made right. Would you help us to see that? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.